we have been going through the book of Titus. So if you would attempt to locate that book in your Bible, that'd be great. It's about ninth from last in the Bible, I think, right after uh, 1st and 2nd Timothy. Uh, If you can dig back in your memory banks, uh, the book of Titus is about uh, applying the gospel, that truth about the life and death and resurrection of Jesus for sinners, to church life. The whole idea is, is when the gospel is applied, the church shines, that the church becomes this uh, beautiful, God-saturated community uh, that draws the lost and the nations. And we've, we've talked through so far in Titus what the gospel is, um, that it's this, this grace of God in Christ that both saves us and trains us to live godly lives, um, that the gospel We've applied gospel to leadership and to family and personal lives. And now we're going to take a really interesting shift and apply the gospel uh, to how a Christian lives in public. So if you've ever wondered uh, what Jesus would say about your relationship to Twitter or to the unbeliever you share a cubicle with or to how you spend your weekends, uh, this passage will bring uh, some clarity Let's uh, hear the scriptures from Titus 3, verses uh, 1 to 11. Remind them to be submissive to rules and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and evil, malice and envy, sorry, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Let's pray. Lord, um, we are just utterly dependent upon your grace this morning. Um, you know our hearts. You know that where we are this morning, and we, we just plead for uh, the grace and the presence um, of the living God to come. We just pray the Spirit would come through this passage, teach us, train us to live godly lives. Help us to do so uh, as we just experience afresh uh, the grace of Jesus. I pray that in his name. Amen. So what do you do as a Christian when you find the actions of your president repulsive? What do you do as a Christian um, when you find how everyone around you talks about our president to be disgusting? What do you do when you share a cubicle with an unbeliever who is miserable to be around. How do you deal with the homeless man asking you for money? 
Does God have something to say about how you spend your weekends, about how you use your free time? Uh, Titus 3 uh, is a very broad passage that answers all of these questions for us. Um, it's it's going to say something very clear and I think very convicting, uh, that we view our public lives, that we live in public in light of the gospel. That in fact this, this truth about Jesus and his life and his death for sinners, him paying for our sins, inviting us to find life in him, to trust him, that that is not just something that saves us. In fact, it's the lens through which we see our lives. It applies to our free time. Um, So uh, we're going to see several things in this passage. First, we will see a command to live out the gospel in public. Second, we'll see the reason why, the gospel itself. And third, we'll see a reminder that the gospel is essential and central. So let's see what it looks like first to live out the gospel in public. So first, living out the gospel in public uh, has three things. First is a gospel submission to broken leaders. Verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 1. Remind them, God's people that is, to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient. I think that's also in relationship to rulers and authorities. Now, uh, don't forget, we are talking about Crete. Crete's an island in the Mediterranean. This time in Crete's history, it was under the Roman Empire. So the main, the main guy who's in charge of Crete, right? You got the Roman Empire, who at this point was uh, a pagan, uh, bloodthirsty, immoral conqueror, all right? Uh, and you've got all of the governors and officials he's appointed. Most likely they're corrupt, they're idolaters, etc. And uh, Paul's primary command is not that the Christians criticize or that the Christians bemoan or complain about these pagan rulers, but that they submit to them, that they listen, that they obey. Um, and notice uh, the command starts with remind them. That's really helpful for us. I think, uh, I think, we're, I think we all know that the scriptures clearly teach obedience to, to civil authority. Now, again, I want to be clear, all right? There's times, right, right, like in the book of Acts, and I think chapter 5 or 6, where Peter says we must obey God rather than man, right? That, that, those are times when authorities command you to sin. You don't sin. You obey God, right? Uh, however, in general, um, when authorities are not specifically commanding you to sin, you obey them. In fact, in Romans 13, Paul goes as far to say, honor the emperor, respect him. And so the first part of living out the gospel in public is to respect and honor and submit to ruling authorities. And uh, we got to go here, okay, um, just because of the political climate in America. Uh, we're in a very interesting position uh, as Christians in America. Uh, we, for the first time, well, at least I think, uh, we have a president uh, who does uh, uphold some conservative values that are good, uh, I think. For example, Donald Trump is pro-life. That's a good thing. I rejoice in that, right? But who in many ways, right, if we're holding a biblical standard of leadership, uh, he is a immoral person, right? For example, he's a serial adulterer, unrepentant, right? That's a bad thing. And so Christians are in this interesting position in America today where we cannot wholeheartedly embrace Donald Trump as the Lord's anointed, as you might have heard some people crazily say, without completely destroying our witness. Likewise, 
if we're going to obey this passage, we cannot be people who every time we hear his name cannot speak anything but evil about him. All right? We can't be the people retweeting some Democratic sen senators, whatever, about Donald Trump, right? We, ca we can't do that. This passage says commands respect and submission. So what does it look like? Um, Russell Moore recently said, this was after uh, Donald Trump uh, picked, uh, I think Brett, I can't pronounce his last name, the new Supreme Court nominee. And uh, Moore's had an interesting relationship. He's the, uh, he's the head of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission in Washington. And he was very critical of Donald Trump as a, uh, uh, as a candidate. But when Donald Trump uh, announced him picking the Supreme Court justice, Russell Moore was very happy and commended the president on that. And so, so uh, a reporter asked him, like, so what, have you changed your position on Donald Trump? And here's what Moore said. He said, we need to be people, as Christians, who at this point recognize that we ought to be willing to critique our leaders when they do wrong and affirm and support our leaders when they do right. In other words, uh, Moore is advocating that we talk about issues and actions. So, so again, you can disagree with a ruler or authority's immoral action and speak about that while respecting their person. Likewise, you can agree with and wholeheartedly affirm a righteous action without wholly embracing their person. Uh, we have to live in that tension. And of course, uh, that's kind of a sidebar just because all of us cannot open our news app without seeing 15 articles in a row about Donald Trump. Uh, of course, it goes further than that, obviously, like uh, you obey the law, right? You see a sign that says don't litter. You don't just, oh, whatever, you know, like, like you obey, you actually obey laws. You don't cheat your taxes. Um, but first, okay, uh, a gospel submission to broken rulers. Uh, next, uh, you, we see in the text, a gospel works for a broken culture. Look at, uh, look at uh, the end of verse 1. Remind them, dot, 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 to be ready for every good work. Uh, notice again in verse 8, we talk about good works. Uh, Paul says that the gospel is a good, a good, trustworthy saying, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. We'll actually see this again uh, next time I teach, which I think will probably be two Sundays from now, depending on when baby comes. But uh, verse 14 says, as one of the last thing Paul says in this letter, let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. So uh, what, are, uh, what are the good works that are, are uh, open here in uh, Titus 3? Uh, certainly, any action a Christian does uh, that glorifies God is a good work, right? Like, come to church, good work, good job, right? Um, open, your, open your Bible in the morning, reading, that's good. Uh, but this passage particularly highlights public, culture-engaging good works. Right, notice in... Uh, Chapter 3, verse 14, let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so they can help in cases of urgent need, right? The idea is that these particular good works in Titus 3, all right, are primarily about blessing the broken culture in which you live, about giving your life and your time, blistering your hands, right, so that America can be blessed. Um, what are some examples of good works? James 1. Caring for orphans and widows in their affliction. You could mentor a foster kid. You can volunteer. From the lips of Jesus, a little more, a little more intense here. Sell your possessions and give to the poor, right? 
be radically generous. Um, or maybe, uh, maybe you take your weekends and devote your time, right? But, but these are the good works here that are commended, right? That are commanded out of a gospel lifestyle are practical, culture-engaging, hands-dirty, public kind of things. So don't ignore your culture. Don't hate it. Don't flee into your Christian bubble. Engage it to bless it. Um, and I want to say something that's very, uh, I think this is going to be a little offensive, but I think uh, I see this in myself a lot, right? And what I, what, I, what I come to church wanting, what I want out of my Christian life, I want to be fed spiritually, right? I want to be comforted. I want to be encouraged. I want to feel good in here, right, because of Jesus, right? So that I can go live a mostly comfortable and convenient and fun life, right? That's where I start, right? Apart from Jesus, apart from his work in my life, what I want is for Jesus to bless me, right, with comfort and security and identity so that I can do what I want to, feeling good about myself. Um, and uh, this, I think this impacts our particular group in some ways. Like, let me just give you an example that might get in your grill a little bit. But maybe this weekend or maybe uh, in the last few weeks you've noticed, all right, We'll have a few weekends where we've got like four different things going on, okay? Like you have to choose and pick. And uh, you might find yourself like holding out for the best thing to go to, right? You're on, you're on, you're on Facebook, you're, you're looking, okay, okay, they're doing this, all right. Well, I don't know if the girl I'm crushing wants going to be there. I'm going to wait. Maybe if she likes it, I'll go, you know? Maybe, like, and, you, you just, and you find yourself like, like you're, you're just, you're kind of like holding out for the best thing. And um, that's funny, um, but... Isn't, isn't that just another, isn't that just unmitigated selfishness, right? Like, guys, the fear of missing out is unmitigated selfishness. And um, I think that just shows uh, how in many ways all of us have departed from this idea that a Christian's life, like a Christian's tangible, public, hands and feet life is meant to be devoted to good works, now, of course, there's a place for fun, right? There's a place to laugh. There's a place to be together. But it's not the primary place. The primary reason we're here, right, is to give ourselves to the good of the unbelieving culture around us. Um, and so I don't know exactly what it looks like for you. I'm not sure precisely what kind of good work the Lord is calling you to. But I know that there's something and I know that it's going to cost you something. Um, there's, uh, for, for me and Sarah, right, for me and Sarah, one of the ways in which this has uh, kind of impacted our lives, I talk about this a lot, but we became foster parents two years ago, and uh, there wasn't this uh, emotion-filled sense that God was directly asking us to do this. It was more of like a, um, we have to obey Jesus. Like, we have to give ourselves. Like, this is a, like, we, we find out there's uh, today, or maybe not today, but uh, at any given time, there are 4,000 children in South Carolina, right, who have nowhere to go. They need 4,000 more foster homes today in South Carolina. And we just started getting confronted with stats like that, and we're like, man, we have to do something, right? And again, that doesn't, that doesn't make us super righteous. In fact, I think uh, fostering has shown me my sin more than anything else. Another, another time on that. But, uh, but the idea, okay, is that there's something for you this morning. Maybe not being a foster parent, maybe it's ministering to the poor, maybe it's adjusting your, your, your weekend, your social schedule, right? But there's something 
Maybe you're already doing it, and the Lord's just confirming that this morning, right? But maybe there, there's something, a tangible, engaging the culture in America, unbelievers, right? Good work for you. See the gospel and go forward. Um, so we've got a gospel submission to broken leaders, gospel works for a broken culture. And finally, maybe the hardest one, gospel kindness to broken people. Look at verse 2. Whew. To speak evil of no one. To avoid quarreling. Should I put online? No, I'm just kidding. Sorry. To avoid quarreling. To be gentle. And to show perfect courtesy towards all people. What's the first thing that happens when you try to submit to ungodly leaders or when you try to help unbelievers? You get frustrated at how sinful they are. Right? You, you experience their evil firsthand against you. And your temptation is to speak evil of them or to, be, or to fight back. And this pastor says, no, actually, um, the standard here is perfect courtesy. Absolute kindness. Gentleness. Um, I worked at a Chick-fil-A uh, here in Mount Pleasant, the, one, the old one by the Publix. The best one. And uh, it's the one that Rand currently works at and blesses. Uh, but the operator of that store, and the operator of the one here, his name is Josh Malone. He's an elder at our church, great godly man. But he really embodied this. Uh, whenever you work uh, with the general public, you'll always find there are some people who will come in want to punch you because you forgot to put the pickles on their chicken sandwich, okay? There's always people like that, okay? And uh, here was Josh's policy, all right, with angry, ridiculous, entitled Mount Pleasant customers. Here's what he said. He said, and this, it's, it blew my mind when he first told me this. He said, um, the louder they get, the softer I get. The more they demand, the more I give. And uh, it makes no sense unless you know Jesus, right? When people speak evil of you, the temp- what you want to do is speak evil right back. When people are angry with you, you want to get angry right back. But when you walk with Jesus, engaging people with the gospel looks like perfect courtesy. It looks like getting more gentle the more abrasive people get. It looks like giving the more people demand of you. So what do we do as we submit to broken leaders and we engage in our broken culture? Uh, maybe we should, as the old adage goes, we, you kill people with kindness, right? I love that. I love that thing. Kill them with kindness. You know, as you're around unbelievers, you're around difficult people, you go to work Monday and somebody tries to steal one of your clients, or undercut you, right? Perfect courtesy is God's will for you. That will make Jesus look glorious. So uh, here's a picture of the uh, Christian life in public. It is a life of joyful and quiet submission to the government. It's a life that engages the culture with good works, that blesses America. If every Christian in America was sent away, America should miss Christians and their works. And finally, it's something that does those two very difficult things with perfect courtesy. It's a, it's a good word to us who live in 21st century divided, angry America. But it may, uh, it may be an impossible word. Uh, this is one of those things. You never know how difficult it is until you try. Um, how in the world do you become the kind of person 
who as a young adult with no uh, like external structural family responsibilities who willingly gives your weekends and your free time sacrificially to others? How does that happen, right? How do you, how do you not scroll through all of those politically vehement articles over and over again, just getting drawn in, right? How do you do that? What does that look like? This passage says that you engage in that kind of life, not as you try really hard or as you just get really motivated, but as you meditate on the gospel. Look at verse 3. This is uh, one of the most glorious descriptions of the gospel in the whole Bible. But it starts with this word, for. When you see that word in the Bible, that means that what is coming now is the reason, it's the grounding for everything that's come before. Okay? So the idea here, uh, if we've just talked, if the Christian life was was a house, okay, we just talked about the siding and the windows and the paint color and how nice the kitchen looks inside, okay? Now we're talking about the foundation of the house, right? Something most people don't see, right? But it, it's the most important part of the house. It holds it up. The gospel is the reason for all these behaviors. So it starts off, four. We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. We can keep going, but you might notice there's just so much here. It's almost like Paul started writing about the gospel and he just could not contain himself. But we'll, walk, we'll walk through it for a minute. Part one of the gospel is who you were when God saved you. Do you notice that? Verse 3, we ourselves, that's all of us, not just people who weren't raised in Christian homes, right? We're once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy. There was nothing attractive in us that led God to save us. It wasn't like God looked down and said, hey, hey, John's trying really hard. I'm going to give him salvation, right? No, 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 no. Nobody was there, right? We were all led astray, disobedient, hateful. And when we were there, right, whether that was like me when you're a 17-year-old in college and your, your life looks like that, or whether it's like you when you were a little 7-year-old, right? And you, you know, right before you went to VBS and got saved or whatever your story was, right, you were that. You may not remember it very well, right? But you were that. You were disobedient to your, to your parents, right? You were enslaved to various passions and pleasures, even if those passions and pleasures were video games, or snacks, right? Right? Whatever it is, okay? Even if your story is not one of these dramatic testimonies, okay? It's still Titus 3. This was who you were when God chose to have mercy upon you. And um, how does God save? What does he do? Just in case we missed it, it says, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, okay? Uh, the idea of that, I think, is that God's heart that's full of love just overflows in salvation, right? And when, when it says uh, this, uh, when it appeared, that's, that's talking about Jesus, right? God's loving kindness and goodness appeared when God became a man, right? When he lived a perfect life, when he suffered on the cross, bearing the sins of his people, right? And when he rose again, that's when God's, God's love and kindness appeared. And it says here, right, that's been applied to us. He saved us just in case you weren't sure not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. 
God did not save us because of what's in us. In fact, he saved us up in contrast to what's in us. He saved us just because he's loving, just because he's good. It's glorious. I think that's a really good foundation for the Christian life. All right, if, you're, uh, if you've been a Christian for a little while and now you're struggling, you're struggling with sin, you're struggling with guilt, and if God would have mercy upon you when you were this guy in Titus, Titus 3, he's merciful to you now, right? He's, he's good. Um, but notice, what's the point of this gospel description? This is very important. The point of this is this is how a Christian engages with American culture. This is the pattern and the model and the motivation for how you go out tomorrow and engage with unbelievers. Here's the idea. You go to work tomorrow. You're dealing with your unbelieving coworkers. All right. Here's what, here's what the Lord's will is. It's that you take God's unmerited kindness to you, this overflowing of love to you, right? And you apply that to the guys that's next to you and how you treat them, right? You, you, get, you get on Facebook looking out, okay, what's going on Sunday afternoon? What, what, are we, what are we doing today, okay? And you take God's unmerited, overflowing, very costly love for you, and you apply that to how you're going to spend your time, right? When uh, you get on Facebook and you read this article, which gets you lit up about where America is politically, right? And you're about to post it, you know? You take God's unmerited kindness to you in Jesus, and you let that make your decision on whether you're going to share it or not. It's the model, okay? But uh, Paul goes on. We, we just got to go here because it's so good. But it says, uh, how does God save us? By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, um, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. You, you could spend like a year preaching through everything in this passage. Um, I'll go through it relatively quickly. Just notice first, okay, uh, if the Trinity, that is the truth that God is one, and the one God exists in three persons, if that's this kind of dusty or difficult doctrine for you, just notice that in this passage, if God is not one, per, one nature existing in three persons, we cannot be saved. Do you see that here? Right? God chooses to be merciful. He pours the Spirit out on us through Jesus. That's how you get saved. Apart from God being Father, Son, and Spirit, one, there is no salvation. Again, another, another whole sermon series there. But uh, we've got to go on. How does God save us? First, he pours out. He, he, he causes us, sorry, he causes us to be born again. He regenerates us. The idea there is that you get a new nature. Uh, there's a, a, an idea of washing here. Um, a Christian is someone who, when, when, you're, when you're an unbeliever, you are, you're, you're a sinner. That's who you are. When you meet Jesus, you get washed. And you become now a cleansed person who struggles still with sin. Does that make sense? There's a difference, Right? Your identity, who you are, you're someone who's been washed. You have a new nature. God's done that in the gospel. Even if you, even if you can't feel it this morning, right? If you're a Christian, God's done this. He's given you a new nature. He's washed you. He's renewed you, right? And he's done that by pouring the Spirit out on you through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And then it continues on, right? So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Justification is this idea that people, or you, if you trusted Jesus, 
You are 100% right before God this moment. God looks at you through Jesus, and what he sees is someone who has always lived perfectly and righteously. That's justification by faith. You just trust. You just come to Jesus. He gives that to you as a gift. And because you're right with God, you are now an heir according to the hope of an eternal life. Heirs are people who are obviously their children who are waiting for an inheritance. All right, that's every Christian, right? We have hope. We have glory. So again, just want to restate this, okay? That is, it's like, it's like there's just so many blessings here. Like you just, it goes on and on and on and on. And the idea of this passage primarily is that all of those things God has done for you. So first, rest in that and enjoy that. But second, take that and apply it to how you live in public. Make what God has done for you in Jesus the model for your life in America. That's the idea. Just notice uh, Paul just cannot get over the fact the only way to do this is the gospel. Look at verse 8, 9, and 10. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people, but uh, avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. So, first thing Paul says in verse 8, these things, that refers almost certainly to the gospel summary, right? He says, these things, the gospel, right? The truth about what God's done for you, Jesus. This is what's profitable for the church. This is what you focus on. This is what creates people who do good works. It's not a topical series on the Christian technology or um, really good motivational moral sermons, right? It's the gospel. It's, it's hearing afresh and applying the gospel that creates you. So, so listen, some of you this morning, uh, you might be in a place where you live like the gospel. you have forgotten the gospel. You, you know, you got saved, right? But right now, your Christian life primarily consists of, well, you know, I, I go to church and I, I read the scriptures and I'm, I'm trying hard and I pray. And, and what you're doing is you're, li- you're attempting to live the Christian life apart from the gospel. You're trying to be moral and obedient apart from the grace of God in Jesus. And that is not how the model works. You either become arrogant or you fail and you stop. Right? The, the idea of this passage, if, if you're going to do what God calls you to actually do, right? if you're going to sacrificially give your life away, if you're going to be obedient to people who don't merit your obedience, right? you have to have this truth in your heart. You have to meditate on it, chew on it. Gospel is not the door to the Christian life. It's the door and the path and the destination. It's not the diving board, right? It's the pool. You grow by going deeper into the gospel. Let me attempt a final illustration that might help us. Um, I think a lot of times uh, we talk about um, looking to Jesus, um, like looking to the gospel, like, like seeing him, trusting him, like with the eyes of our heart, right? Um, and I think that's totally true. We absolutely should do that. This passage says you look to Jesus, right, to save you, right? You, you look to him as this beautiful truth that gives you life. But you also take the gospel and you look through it into your world, 
Okay, so the gospel is more like glasses, okay? You don't look at glasses, right? If you, if you look at them, I can't even see these things right now, right? I can't even see you. You guys are all, everyone just got way more attractive. I'm just kidding, sorry. Um, but, um, but the gospel, right? You look at the gospel, you trust it, you see it, but you, you, put, you put it on and then you can see your life. That's the idea. So, so, so back to our initial question. What do you do, right, when your president is reprehensible in your eyes, right? You take, you take your gospel glasses and put them on, and you see him afresh. What do you do when you're looking at next weekend and all, all your plans, all right? You, take, you see those things through the lens of the gospel. My encouragement to you this morning is to pick one thing. Pick one issue in your public life, right? Look at it through the lens of the gospel, and then whatever you see, by faith in Jesus, go do it. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we just thank you for this clear and uh, just wonderful passage. Thanks for that what you have done for us in Christ, that you have, in your mercy and, and your love, you've, you've chosen to save. And uh, we just pray that you'd help us to rest there this morning and to trust and to look to you. And then, uh, as we experience your grace, to, to live out the gospel. We just, just plead that you'd just let this be uh, practically worked out in our lives with the Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.